really all of today's lecture is a single class and I couldn't really figure out what order to put it in in order to uh, deliver something that makes sense. Um, but essentially the next place we're going is to look at what a Marxist analysis of capitalism can help to tell us about identity politics. It's not so much that Karl Marx and company um, have a definitive answer on identity politics and identitarianism, but I do think it's fair to say that their model um, is far more strongly predictive than any other social scientific model of where questions of identity would be going. And they have a critical vocabulary for talking about questions of identity. One of the things that really angers me about um, self-identified intersectionalists is their insistence that uh, the Marxists didn't do all this work that we're gonna be going over this week. Um, that, I mean, I know that I'm sure that Kimberly Crenshaw herself would agree that the foundation on which she stands for analyzing class and gender and race is the vocabulary that the Marxists gave us. Um, and uh, they gave us a model. The model may be incomplete, it may be insufficient, but it's powerful. And I haven't seen anything more powerful. Um, and we can talk about why people reject that model to the degree that they do and fall into other camps. It used to be very easy to answer that question. It used to be very easy because you could just say, well, because of the Cold War. Uh, we're not Marxists because we're, um, we're, uh, we believe in freedom and we live in these societies. Marxism, of course, took a real theoretical hit during the Cold War because Ironically, it temporarily ceased being a predictive model, that history went so off into the ditch uh, that um, it wasn't merely that we weren't politically aligned with movements that said they were Marxist. Marxism didn't seem to have the kind of predictive power it had during its first 70 years. But since the collapse of the Soviet Union, that predictive power has come back. It's come back hard. So. Um, let me, uh, uh, so there's a term, and I was, in, um, I was talking about this term doing the economic history course a month ago, and uh, Jonathan was on the call, and uh, I was talking about the properties of late-stage capitalism. And uh, Jonathan very recently said, well, why do we call the era we're in late-stage capitalism? I said, well, because Marx and Engels and Lenin and these people said that in the late stage of capitalism, the things that, that are happening now would be happening. Well, we, but that doesn't actually tell us it's a late stage. We actually have no, no idea how much more of this shit we have to take. Uh, we don't know if this is, this is still early. We don't know if this is middle. Uh, but we call it late-stage capitalism based on labels that were affixed a um, hundred years ago to the developments that are taking place today. Okay, so late-stage capitalism is a term we'll use even though it's probably literally untrue. Um, so what are some of the features of late-stage capitalism? Well, one is, uh, well, Vladimir Lenin said, empire becomes the main political structure, that we can't look at the nation state or something like it and see that as a closed system, that we have to see these global imperial systems that move goods and people over huge areas. This is, this is uh, late stage capitalism. And within any imperial system, hi Samina, uh, within any imperial system, there are three parts. There's a core, there's a semi-periphery, and there's a periphery. In earlier phases of capitalism, there's only a core and a periphery. The emergence of this category, the semi-periphery, is one of the first harbingers 
of late stage capitalism. And it's something that Vladimir Lenin saw right at the beginning of the 20th century. What he saw was the movement of manufacturing away from the core of power in an empire, the deindustrialization, relatively speaking, of the core of the British Empire, the German Empire, the French Empire, the American Empire, uh, and the movement of manufacturing to an imperial periphery, a location that was, is not right at the edge where you're grabbing raw materials, but it's not right in the center where all the power is. Now, people who look at empire are not particularly concerned about borders because a successful thriving empire is constantly lying about its size and the relationships within it, um, right? When uh, you think of the Roman Empire, many of the, and you look at those maps and they're all colored in in red for where Rome controlled, many of those places were places Rome recognized as independent states that were merely friends of Rome. Friends of Rome is a, is a great category. It applied to King Herod's Judea. And um, so, Let's make sure we're not just talking about what an empire declares to be its territory, but parts of it that are clearly part of this integrated whole that is moving people and energy and power. So much of the Roman Empire, right, we color in red now, even though part of Roman imperialism was the vigorous attestation that uh, many of these states were actually independent. Uh, the same is true of the British Empire, right? The British Raj controlled only 40% of India. 60% of India was independent principalities who were merely friends of the Raj. The same as uh, we think of uh, Britain's territories in the Persian Gulf, Bahrain, Kuwait. These weren't even allies of Britain. Britain had truces with those territories and their occupation consisted of two civil servants who sat in the emir's palace and wrote reports. Um, but nevertheless, this was part of the empire. So when we think about that, you can look at the American empire at its height, and you can see that it maintained a periphery in South and Central America where it extracted its raw materials from. And the location of manufacturing within America consistently moved away from the centers of power in New York, Boston, Los Angeles. The same is true of the British Empire during the 20th century. It either moved manufacturing into its colonies or it moved them into peripheral rural regions of Britain, Sheffield, Norfolk, all these places that we think of as labor's red wall in the north, those are all places that inherited their manufacturing from London. London had been the manufacturing center in the 19th century and manufacturing moved into the rural, into the semi-periphery, into the hinterland. So that's one of the features of late, cat, late stage capitalism and that leads to another feature that sets us on our path. How the core creates wealth becomes different in late capitalism. It's through processes with terms like monetization and financialization. So what do you replace the factories in London with? You replace them with banks. You replace them with the stock exchange. These are places that are making money even faster than industrial enterprises but they're not making any physical objects. They are, they are creating value immaterially. And so the valuation of the immaterial world is the central dynamic of late stage capitalism, that we commodify things that have no physical existence. And, um, one of the ways we do that is we just make new bullshit, right? We create stock derivatives. We create stock shorting. 
we uh, create we constantly create new kinds of financial securities new models for lending and borrowing against those securities um, we turn currency into a speculative thing that you that is a bet about the value of the currency rather than the currency's value itself uh, we do all those things but there is also a move into things that existed immaterially before capitalism. Now, a term that has been woefully and disgustingly repurposed by identitarians is cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation is an idea developed by Marxists to refer to a very specific phenomenon, the phenomenon of Monsanto patenting the basmati rice gene sequence, the phenomenon of capital records recording uh, folk songs and spirituals of racialized Americans and releasing them on vinyl, um, the, uh, the commodification of, uh, so cultural appropriation is a real thing. What cultural appropriation is, is taking a thing that is owned by a cultural group in a non-monetary way and turning it into money, appropriating it into capitalism. Cultural appropriation's current definition is an absurd one. The idea that, um, only, that white people should only sing music they can prove is, is made, was made by people we would think of as white. Um, you know, um, undergrads at liberal arts colleges protesting shawarma stands in the food court, this sort of thing. There's nothing to do with cultural appropriation. It's not about, but it is how people in late capitalism would reimagine cultural appropriation. So cultural appropriation is a big thing. So the economy at the core grows by creating new kinds of imaginary capital but it also reaches into the minds and cultures of people all over the world, seizes those ideas, those traditions, those concepts, and owns them, turns them into property. So, um, so they can grab a culture's knowledge of genetics, they can grab a culture's musical traditions, and of course, one of the big fallacies of whiteness, right? Part of, part of our understanding of our whiteness is that we don't have a culture. It's just the people who we control who have culture, right? That, uh, that oh no, white people don't have culture. You know, oh, what a ridiculous, we're so culturally impoverished. Um, that whole discourse, of course, it, it faces another element. Um, you know, we're no better or worse culture producers than anyone else. But um, another element of cultural appropriation is intellectual property rights being assigned to new music, to new works of fiction. Um, right? Charles Dickens didn't own the intellectual property of his books. After the first printing, anyone was allowed to print a Charles Dickens book, and all kinds of printing presses did. And he only got money from the people who paid him the first time. The idea that his ideas and stories would continue to be his and he would continue to be paid for them is nutty idea. That's a 20th century idea. The idea of artists getting royalties or more importantly, the corporations that police intellectual property seizing most of those royalties because you need a powerful systems of surveillance to control when somebody quotes a book or sings a song or replays that song or copies that book, right? We have cable providers right now, you know, checking out the pattern of bits that I am downloading to make sure that it's not a movie somebody owns. Uh, so, this, so there's this massive creation, not creation of value, but the monetization of things that were already valuable, but did not, were not considered in monetary terms. Now there's a third area of monetization, which is not primarily associated with the core. It's associated with the periphery, but it's also a, an important one. 
Thank you. And that is the monetization of subsistence. So, um, and there's a moment of capitalist self-consciousness that happens in the 1860s in America um, that helps to tease this idea out. 1860s America is really the first place you see modern capitalism fully formed. Um, that's, it's, it's the broad interest in seeing capitalism uh, fully come into being that creates the consent necessary for um, Lincoln to force the abolition of slavery, right? That there, there is a bigger force even than slavery. Uh, and so one of the things that happens is once the North has occupied the Southern United States and there are all these plantations, um, there's this big dispute about whether to follow through on the 40 acres and a mule promise that had been made to the former slaves. If they fought with the Union Army, they would receive 40 acres and a mule. And so there was a faction of the original Republican Party that believed in land reform, in breaking up the acreages of the old planters and um, distributing them to the former slaves. And there was another faction that, uh, that felt that this was too great an imposition, too great... Um, uh, too great an adulteration of the fundamental principles of private property rights. So this all got debated in uh, hearings that were held by Republican politicians in the 1860s. And one of the common questions that would be asked of former slaves, questions that would be asked of former slaves is, what will you plant on your 40 acres? And... Um, uh, they had phenomenal plans, right? These are people who had been abducted from very successful agricultural societies in uh, the Congo Basin and in the Niger. Um, lots of understanding of uh, farming practices, never mind what they learned on the job in America. And so what you would see would be almost permacultural plans for agriculture, uh, similar to the way indigenous people had practiced it before highly diverse set of crops planted in proximity to one another so that a crop that depleted soil of one nutrient would be next to one that replaced that nutrient. A common feature, you'd usually have just a, a, a couple of hogs, a bunch of chickens, um, no big ranches, just domestic animals, again, whose waste, whose feed were all part of this integrated system. And the Republicans were horrified and uh, canceled any plans for land reform because what these acreages were not producing was cotton. The single biggest export of the United States that the country survived on. So one of the things you associate, right, subsistence today, we think of poverty. But when I talk about subsistence societies, what I mean are societies that meet their own material needs and do so in a non-monetized way. So you have village societies, you have these societies where they're meeting all their material needs and some are, people are getting fat, people are having a good time. This is a central reason why the third world movement and the non-line movement failed in the 20th century. Um, villagization was the, um, the dominant economic model that was advocated by Nehru, that was advocated by Nyerere, that was advocated by Nkrumah. And what villagization does is it hammers your export crops because giving people control of their own land to raise their own crops, not only does, do you stop exporting, but because people are meeting their own needs, no money's changing hands, that money has vanished. So when people move to meeting their own needs through subsistence, you are sucking money out of an economy. So one of the things that late capitalism works to do at the periphery is to prevent villagization, 
to prevent self-sufficiency to make sure that everybody is paying money for their food, even if they work on a farm. And to make sure that if they're working on a farm, you are selling your stuff into the market, someone else is processing it, and you're not touching it until it's a, until it's a finished product you can buy. Um, that phenomenon uh, was labeled in, the, that phenomenon is a larger phenomenon that began to take place in the semi-periphery and came to be, and is now called social disarticulation. The idea that, that what you make and what you consume become unrelated. Um, that, that's what you want at the periphery. But what that does is it means there's more money in the world. The economy has grown. If people go from a $4,000, 4,000 calorie a day life as subsistence farmers to an 800 calorie day life as agricultural laborers, they might be taking in 75% less nutrients, but the economy has grown. And contemporary neoliberal economists will say, everyone is richer now. Look at all the wealth. So that's, uh, that's central to um, uh, this idea. So we have all of these ways of creating money in imperial systems at the core, at the periphery, that um, don't actually involve changing anything physically. They involve, a, uh, they involve redistribution and reimagination. Uh, now, this is what we knew of late capitalism 15 years ago. But there is some mysterious stuff in late capitalism that we only partly understood, elaborated by Friedrich Engels. And he talked about how, as people became more alienated from their work, from their homes, from the means of production, they would begin to tie more of their identity to commodity fetishism. Uh, this idea that fashion was a way of distinguishing yourself and demonstrating community, that was really important. And commodity fetishism uh, uh, was a rising force beginning in the 1880s because of the invention of uh, ethnicity in the capitalist sense. Of course, the term ethnos is an ancient term, going back to uh, you know the the the, the pre-Macedonian Mediterranean. But um, certain ways of understanding heritage and culture are friendly to commodity fetishism, and were also necessary for labor systems that were being built in the late 19th century. The big story in labor and migration in the late 19th and early 20th century, basically 1880 to 1920 is a period, um, those of us who live in places like Canada call the immigration boom. Uh, there was massive dispossession and uh, proletarianization in Europe. Um, the social forces that had made Dutch and English people uh, had forced them out of the countryside, became continent-wide forces in Europe. People all over Europe were going through this experience of dispossession, proletarianization, urbanization, industrialization, and uh, in the 18, uh, beginning in the 1880s. Beginning in the 1880s was a competition for those immigrants as a source of labor, a global competition in which um, various, within which various states vied. Um, the states that were successful in that competition are today called white settler states. They're states that went from imagining a more conventional kind of nationalist heritage, you know, oh, we're descended from Spanish settlers, or we're descended from Portuguese settlers, or we're the Gauls, we've lived here since time immemorial. Uh, we're descended from Aryan invaders. Those older stories had a cultural valence to them. 
in the 1880s, there's a shift because of the hegemony of race science and social Darwinism. And people think differently. Um, the um, prosperous states of the new world where there have been massive collapses in indigenous populations recently that have not been replaced caused by virgin soil epidemics. Um, these states are full of white people. They have a small labor force. They have no effective indigenous labor they can mobilize. And they become the most vigorous competitors for those European immigrants. Um, and it's backed by their scientific theories, which say that the reason there's a lack of productivity, and this is especially true in Brazil and the United States, is that the people living there are too dark. That what we need to do is whiten the population by importing whiter people from Europe. And then the country will become more efficient, it'll become more governable, because everything gets better the whiter people are, according to 1880s social Darwinism. So the thinking is, especially in states with a significant African population, Brazil, South Africa, and the US, there's a double imperative. It's not, uh, it's, not just to build the labor force necessary to compete with Europe. It's also to prevent the race suicide of the white race through its mixture with the tainted blood of African peoples. Uh, Canada is late to the game. We're enthusiastic, but we're late. John A. Macdonald was so racist, he wasn't up for this plan. John A. Macdonald was interested in English people, Scottish people, and maybe, maybe if we were being very generous, we'd let in some Germans and Irish. But surely that's about as far as you go. You want to make sure those are the Protestant Germans, because we've already got enough Catholics with these Irish. So... Catholicism, of course, made you less white back in the day. Uh, so um, Wilfrid Laurier comes along, 1896. He's a modern man. Joins the immigration boom with great enthusiasm because to Laurier, it's like, no, whiteness is a thing. These old ideas about nationality are quaint. They're quaint and they're aesthetic but they're not the fundamental. Race is the fundamental. And we are going to be a state of the white race. Uh, that's the white settler state ethos. And there, but there are, and so on the one hand, these white settler states supposedly don't care whether you're Swedish or German or Ita Southern Italian or Northern Italian or Turkish or what have you. I mean, every white settler state has its own color line. We had and have, as Canadians, the highest color line on earth. We're the only people who do not think that Lebanese Christians are white. Uh, everybody else sets their color line a little lower than Canada. But uh, we, we have the highest standard of whiteness up to the present day, even higher than Australians. Uh, so, um, the, um, so this, this idea then is, well, what are these old nationalities, these old ethnicities? Well, one of the first things that's materially evident, especially in the white settler states that use the new settlers to industrialize, uh, the United States uh, in its manufacturing sector, Brazil in its manufacturing and coffee sectors, um, one of the things about these white settlers is we may know that they're all white and value them on this basis, but these old nationalistic resentments can be very helpful when it comes to preventing the formation of trade unions or breaking strikes. Because if you, so one of the things, one of the, the entities that becomes very important in the immigration boom um, are labor contracting firms. 
a company will hire a labor contracting firm to bring in a mass of people who all speak one language. And the company builds a streetcar line to a new suburb that they construct and rent to these people and charge them to use the, the, the streetcar line. And that's a unilingual streetcar suburb. Maybe that suburb speaks Swedish, maybe it speaks Italian. But the point is, if you want your company to be successful, you have a couple of these groups. And so the National Association of Manufacturers in America gives us an idea that we have very different, we, have, we think very differently about the heritage of this term and this idea. But multiculturalism is the doctrine of the National Association of Manufacturers. And the National Association of Manufacturers donated heavily to patriotic associations. They, you could have like a free community center if it celebrated your old European ethnicity. Uh, the company might also help pay for language classes so that your children didn't have to learn to speak English. And um, this is also, strangely, one of the first, um, and trade unions hated this, right? We know the, 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 the great trade union hero, Joe Hill, the, the greatest trade unionist hymn, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Joe Hill was not named Joe Hill. Joe Hill's name was Joel Haglund. He was a Swedish man. But he wanted to be known only by the English name he had chosen. And he wrote songs for the international workers of the world in English so that they would all learn the language of the United States and they would be able to organize together across these language barriers. So um, there's, today we have this idea that, that multiculturalism and the programs associated with it, the parades, the days, the classes, the community centers are a creation of the left. They're a creation of industrial capitalism. And one of the interesting features of them is that of course there there are some interesting ways in which, um, you know, those resisting industrial capitalism push back against that, right? So Marxists do create programs in Yiddish. They do create programs in these other languages. They do make these efforts to create competing socialist or unionist versions of the things that the bosses are creating. There's also a strange organization that comes out of all this that um, I believe only exists in Canada now, but it was a global organization that came out of the original multiculturalism wave. And it was an example of people reaching across language barriers and culture barriers, not to directly resist on the picket line, where there was plenty of that, mostly successful, but there was a more subtle form of resistance we see here in Canada, an organization known as the IGA, the uh, Independent Grocers Association. It was very hard to get European ethnic, ethno-cultural products, especially Eastern European ones imported uh, across the Atlantic. The IGA were, um, this association of the people running the grocery stores in all of these um, unilingual streetcar suburbs who were going in on bulk orders of paprika, sauerkraut, and uh, salt beef from the old country. So there's, there's a funny heritage to this time that we've, we've really programmatically forgotten. Although it is interesting to note that the IGA is still the whitest fucking grocery store chain uh, you've ever been to. Uh, it's, it's really something. They have not lost the, the, their, their exemplary whiteness. Now, what's going on here, as you can see with the IGA, is 
this is an this is a further extension and this is an aestheticization where people have an ethnicity an identity and the way they can show it is by shopping for their people's food at the IGA uh, so we can see how there is a mutual magnification of minority identity and commodity fetishism and uh, that um, and and you the, the further into that commodity fetish the better you can perform your identity that's where we were in 2005 well actually let me go back that's where we were in 1998 an exciting new phenomenon in 1998 uh, was the uh, the more pig uh, the multi-member online role-playing game uh, World of Warcraft was once the best known, then I lost track of them. Before World of Warcraft, there was a game called EverQuest. And an economist um, got sick and um, started playing EverQuest and began to realize some shocking things in uh, 1998. Um, EverQuest is a simulation of a world in which you play a character. But economies began to grow up around EverQuest, particularly with highly wired areas of the global south, where people in uh, Seoul and Bangalore in particular, um, these communities that massively invested in uh, internet connectivity in the 90s, um, ahead of North America, actually, where you had people with pretty low wages who could play the game full time. Because it turned out that people who wanted to succeed at the game were willing to pay money in this world to obtain money in that world that uh, you could start by, you can either go through the level grinding process and build your character in EverQuest to the point where uh, they could buy the stuff with what you earned as them, but it turns out that what you earn as you, if you're a white North American, is way more per hour than what you earn as them. So what you could do is you could pay someone in the global south to play their character, acquire the thing or the money you needed, and then give them money in this world that would turn into money in that. In other words, EverQuest developed an exchange rate with the dollar. And the economist went further. He discovered that EverQuest had the 77th largest economy in the world, larger than the economy of any Pacific Island nation at the time. Uh, and that we were exchanging goods and labor and services with a completely immaterial simulation. One of the things that this kicks off is entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley being able to see a self, a different self of ours, the self in the game, and discover what that self wants and serve that self. Now, what if they could make us make more selves? What if they could make us care more about the selves that we've made? What if we could make those selves indulge in commodity fetishes to burnish their identity, just as they did in EverQuest, purchasing goods to make them better wizards, better heroes, better this, better that, better elves. And that's what where we were at the brink of in 2005 with the rise of Facebook. Uh, and uh, in particular, it's Tumblr uh, ahead of Facebook, where we see the greatest effort to create selves of desire, to describe the self that you wish you were or the self you see yourself as that then interacts with other selves of desire, 
in a synergistic fashion so that um, there is this other you that feels like a truer you, a more powerful you, um, one that, uh, that emanates directly rather than indirectly from your consciousness. This is, uh, and, and so people are already aware of the way EverQuest study when people like Zuckerberg come along with Facebook. Now, of course, Facebook is not like Tumblr uh, or Yahoo, which is a whole separate lecture. Um, Facebook isn't like Tumblr or Yahoo because you're still supposed to be you. You're still supposed to be the you that exists in profane space-time, the material you. But one of the things that these earlier essays have done is people have seen the capacity for data collection that we can know so much about what people like. And that, of course, is, even though Facebook is about you, the main way that Facebook learns about you is by learning what you like. And when I, I talk about the development of the capitalist self over the past hundred years, I would say in 1920, you would say you are what you do. You're the laborer, you're the person with the head, the, the, what you went to work and did, that's you. 1960, you are where you live. You've triangulated into a neighborhood that's expressive of your identity through a, a real estate commodity fetish. But today, you are what you like. The thing that is truest about you is not how you treat other people. It's not um, what you go and do as your job. It's not the relationships you have with the people in your home. The truest thing about you is what you like. That is your essence. And, and that's increasingly how we describe ourselves. Um, one of the reasons the Marvel movies do so well is that fandoms are an early form of this. I am a fan of a thing which includes a set of aesthetics, a set of values, but my relationship to it is that I'm a fan. Do I look like Sailor Moon? Am I Sailor Moon in any meaningful way? No, but I'm a fan, and this sits at the front of my identity, right? We think of Donald Trump's highly successful rec mass recruitment of bronies in the last U.S. election, something that's only possible through services like Facebook, that can target people because we're constantly revealing what we like. So we can correlate men under 25 and My Little Pony groups, and we can produce a massive voting juggernaut for Donald Trump in a swing district. Uh, so you are what you like is, so, so of course, Facebook and these other services constantly encourage us to describe ourselves in terms of our commodity fetishes, not because of any political agenda, but because that's real money. People who are trying to sell us stuff need us described as precisely as humanly possible. And they need us not just to describe ourselves in terms of our desires, they need us to see our desires as the primary parts of our identity, the real who we are, that, um, that uh, right, you're praying in church, does God know you better than Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, on a Sunday morning, have you revealed as much to God about your own inner thoughts and desires as you've revealed to Mark Zuckerberg? How could you possibly? Mark Zuckerberg has far more sophisticated access to your subconscious than God does. You have to control, right? You have to mine your own subconscious to tell God what you're up to this week. There's no way that can compete with this synergistic force of commodity fetishism and uh, late capitalism. And so that is really... Uh, 
And so there is not, there is an incentive both to discover desire and to create desire and to link the to commodities. And there's no difference between the creation and discovery of desire. I'll get to that more when I talk about the AIDS crisis. But the one's internal experience of the creation of a desire in the self is one of discovery. We retcon things we like or desire. When we decide to like a thing, it becomes timeless and we've always liked it. We were always waiting to like it. Uh, it becomes part of our essence because it's being used as the main way of defining um, the self, which according to that Calvinist schema is supposed to be inalterable and eternal, part of an eternal order. Yeah, why don't I just, um, I think I'll, I'll finish up with, uh, with the AIDS crisis here because that'll set us on a good course for, for next episode. Um, the AIDS crisis is um, a moment where an external force that we had no control over reinforced late stage capitalism in a way that, that no one could have predicted. Um, just as COVID is reinforcing aspects of late stage capitalism now um, through the Uberization of society, right? Where there are the people who live inside who are safe. And then there are the poor people who um, serve us they, uh, they bring us all the things we need while we stay inside uh, using, um, uh, I, I mean, this economy is shrinking because of COVID and yet the number of delivery driver jobs is increasing every month. And those jobs sit at or below minimum wage, right? That the Uberization of society is being accelerated by this essentially extra social force. Well, the same is true about identity politics in the 80s. Now, the idea of sexual orientation is one that comes out of the late 19th century. It emerges um, starting in the 1880s. Prior to that, people didn't store information about um, what kind of sex you liked uh, in the same way. It wasn't a separate category it interacted with other things. It was typically stored in a more complex variable, which is what gender used to be a more complex variable. Uh, so, um, uh, but from the 1880s to the late 1970s, while there's a, a powerful gay liberation movement that does begin winning rights, um, most men who like sleeping with other men do not publicly identify as gay. Men who publicly identify as gay are a minority of men who enjoy that sort of thing. And the same is true to an even greater extent with women. Uh, that um, uh, that um, you have to be really passionate about your sexuality is defining feature of yourself in order to go in that direction of identifying as gay. There are all, all kinds of workarounds that society is very happy with. Society is very happy with um, married men sleeping with other men. It's reasonably happy with um, single women sleeping with their you know roommate of 40 years. Um, these things are okay, but this idea of gay relationships as a new, as a, as a, a sexual orientation, as a thing everyone has, not just a thing a minority has, really comes out of the AIDS crisis. And it, it's a material need. During the AIDS crisis, um, the problem is, that most men who are having sex with other men, and they're the primary people who are getting AIDS at this time in the white world, 
um, don't identify as gay. And that's a problem. You, because there's all this closeted sexual activity, it's very, very difficult to engage in the practices necessary to limit the spread of AIDS. And what happens is that many elite gay men who are powerful, like, I mean, it's a patriarchy, like, you know, gay men are dealt in at a pretty high level. Um, powerful gay men realize that if we're going to stop AIDS in its tracks, people have to be pushed out of the closet and they have to be pushed out aggressively. The idea that you're an, a married family man um, who's got five kids and you enjoy sucking cock, that goes from being like a minor sin to a terrible form of hypocrisy. Uh, because people's lives are on the line. And so people who are existing, who are leading what come to be called closeted lives, but are actually just lives. It's just like, well, actually who I sleep with isn't as important as who I'm married to, or it isn't as important as me performing this family man identity or performing my priest identity, that being a priest or being a family man and serving others is a more important form of identity than what I like. But this, the, but late capitalist thinking around fetishism allows people to say, no, what you like is the most important and most authentic form of your identity. And if you deny that, there's something psychologically wrong with you. If you deprioritize that, there's something psychologically wrong with you. And that's a good move. It saved millions of lives. Um, there are lots of moments in our history where we, we go faster down a really bad path and you can see very good reasons for doing it. Um, but generally, um, you know, this is, um, uh, this is tough on people, but the emergence of sexual orientation then is a universal property possessed by all people as a new identity category in order to deal with this global pandemic, of course, starts going other places. Of course, this has restructuring impacts on the rest of society. And um, it's... Um, it's important to recognize that um, there's no casting of blame in looking at the narrative as to how we got here, how we built these multi-part identities. They're increasingly based on ideas of desire. What we can see is that there is a powerful force, late capitalism and late capitalist self-making, that um, both people seeking liberation from discrimination and stigma sought out to make the modern gay identity and um, people watching their friends die developed in order to um, keep their community alive and keep their community honest about their sexual practices. You can see how a bunch of fairly unrelated phenomena, right? The, uh, this, the, 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 the need to develop an American industrial sector, the need to mitigate the spread of the AIDS pandemic, all of these things are pushing us in this direction of modern identitarianism. And one of the reasons I lecture the way I do, and one of the reasons I've changed my own political thinking in the past 20 years, is I think that the Marxists have the best explanation for why all of these seemingly disparate forces and disparate solutions One of the things that's a feature of a white settler state is that the elites in it identify as white. And the workers in it 
start to sometimes identify as white, but various efforts are made to inhibit that identification, make sure that a worker is a Swede before he is white. Um, now, one of the things that begins happening uh, in the industrialization of both Brazil and the United States during this time is um, solidarity um, and white supremacy both function as forces that produce broad trade unions. Um, it's one of the big dilemmas in the Texas Socialist Party. One of the reasons I've I've totally reappraised the Conan the Barbarian books. It turns out that Robert E. Howard was a Texas Socialist Party guy, uh, and they were debating this whole question of whether to organize their trade unions on the basis of their shared whiteness, or whether to organize them on the basis of being working class. But in so many places, people take the shortcut of organizing a trade union around whiteness. And what then happens is that low caste workers are brought in to uh, disrupt the whiteness. So what happens is um, in both Brazil and the US, African American workers are brought in in large numbers to break strikes because the unions have the defect of being organized based on white supremacy. That, um, so if you simply mirror the elite in rejecting ethnicity in favor of whiteness, you then become vulnerable to the mobilization of, the, of a racialized underclass against you. Whereas if you follow a more Marxist socialist prescription, it's harder to hold your union together because people are fucking racist, um, but at the same time, you don't have that vulnerability. But, um, but yeah, the original design of a white settler state is that the elites know that these nationalities are bullshit because whiteness is a thing that science has discovered and science is better than culture. So, um, uh, and whereas the people below are an inferior kind of white or a less white precisely because they can't see their shared whiteness so clearly. The question of spontaneous knowledge or how do people experience knowledge making in the context of an atomized self. And so the, the answer, uh, so Julian James talked about the idea of spontaneous knowing that because people are externalizing their own thoughts, they don't think they've been thinking for weeks about a question. They think that God has suddenly told them the answer to the question because they ask the question at a subconscious level. Um, so one of the things that I think is important to recognize is we have this um, really problematic platonic idea where emotions and reason are understood oppositionally. Uh, but brain physiology has helped us to get away from some of that. Um, it appears that thoughts you can hear, according to brain imaging, are largely thoughts in your neocortex, in your frontal lobes. Most thoughts you think are thoughts you can't hear, or rather thoughts that don't show their work. You know, how you took high school math, and if you just wrote down the answer, you were marked wrong because you didn't show your work. Uh, you didn't hear yourself think through all the steps in the math equation. Well, um, yeah, only your only the frontal brain tends to do that. You can hear it think. But the brain that does about 80% of your thinking, your middle brain, only tells you the answer. And you have to use your faculties to figure out how you got that answer post facto. So uh, you... Um, and you can see how Shaw's idea of the commanding self is so congenial to some of those modern brain physiology insights. Um, it appears that the neocortex, like conversation, um, was never supposed to be uh, our main way of thinking, nor has it ever been. It's an error-checking routine. If your middle brain keeps getting the wrong answer, 
that's when you put those frontal lobes into operation to go, I keep thinking this, but it's wrong. So I'm gonna run the much slower, louder part of my brain to check all this stuff because its feature is a debugging feature. Um, now, you can also see how this fits into really problematic identitarian discourses because we don't hear how most of our thoughts are formed. If we have an idea of an eternal and immutable self, it's very easy to think of those thoughts as eternal and immutable. I like this now, this mustard tastes good, therefore my love of the mustard is eternal and immutable. Uh, and let's remember this is, I think we're close to the anniversary of the ketchup nationalism phase that hit Canada a couple years ago. It really, I think it just shows the appalling lameness of Canadian nationalism <laughs> that uh, our mustard company made ketchup and this produced like some kind of national celebration. Uh, the, the Amish, do they exist somehow outside of, or apart from some of these processes? Like, like even, even their, their, their Hutterite brothers up here in Alberta, they still have all their religion, but they are the biggest industrial farmers that you could care to find anywhere. But back in Pennsylvania, they're still getting by with 40 acres and a mule. <laughs> well, first off, um, the relationship between, um, uh, between machines and efficiency is so heavily mythologized in our society that, um, um, that we, um, we often mistake technology for other things. And we often assume technology does things that it does not. Um, this was one of the failures of the late phase of the British Raj was they kept building factories, coal-fired factories, and they couldn't, and coal was dirt cheap, but there was no coal that was as cheap as the Indian labor that they were turning down. So they would make these factories that would then produce a product that cost more than local small marketers could make it for. And uh, it's... Uh, it was one of those sort of myths of industrial capitalism. Now, the Hutterites, just in terms of like my minutia, um, not related to the Mennonites. Um, there are various factions of Mennonites of whom the Amish are one. Um, and there are shitloads of Mennonites all through the Canadian prairies doing exactly what you're talking about. Um, but it turns out that Jacob Hutter was a different sort of guy than uh, Menno. Uh, now, I... I mean, my big doctoral work was studying Mormons. And what I would say, whether you're talking about the Amish, whether you're talking about the Mormons, whether you're talking about any highly distinctive religious group that exists in industrial capitalism, but seems to somehow be getting around some of its features, I tend to think of those highly cohesive fundamentalist religious movements it's like they're anti-retroviral drugs or something. They're like, you go on these really heavily, heavy drugs to immunize yourself against capitalism at horrific cost, right? They have terrible side effects. But it is true that you can create these little formations inside capitalism that provide certain forms of psychological immunity from it. Um, the, uh, and the, the Amish are a great example where they've created such a cohesive structure that although there are many ways the capitalism still shapes them, that they, um, that by doing this actually like really harmful thing to their minds, they're able to keep out other even more harmful things that capitalism would do to them. So like Mormons don't exist in time in a normal sense. Um, that's, that's the thing they've chosen to opt out of. Um, time is a, time is a flat circle in the Mormon world. That's, that's why Battlestar Galactic is our creation myth. Uh, yes, the original Battlestar Galactic series was produced by a member of the Quorum of the Seventy to explain the Mormon creation myth. Uh, and with Mennonites, um, it's clear that it's a bunch of the material relations. 
Now they've also harnessed an element of capitalism, um, which is a commodity fetish. So it's important to remember that if no one likes the fact that their furniture has been handworked by white people to a kind of precision that can't even be detected, um, right? People will pay for the men and for the Amish furniture. They will pay an exorbitant sum of money um, to get something that could well have been made by a machine. You can fake Amish furniture. Uh, but that knowledge that the uh, that that these people in these outfits with white skin living in your own country are making this furniture uh, inflate its value far beyond its material value. So part of the trick of the Amish is not just to build um, protective devices against media, against culture, against all those things. Um, it's also to build an, a powerful interface that allows them to interact with capitalism through one thing and extract value out of that system to keep theirs running. 